This is This Week in Detroit Tigers Baseball, episode number 7 for the week of August 10th through the 17th. Put them in a bag. This Week in Detroit Tigers Baseball is brought to you by Fansided.com, the sports network where diehard fans dish out nonstop sports news and views. Fandom has no offseason, and neither do we. Fansided.com, the number one sports blog network on the internet. Coming up in episode number 7, panelist Jay Ellett Lambie of IvetheTigers.com and John Brunn of TigerGuys.com stop by to talk about the latest in Detroit Tigers action. In our Prospects on the Prowl segment, we will talk about a shortstop that has finally made it to the AAA level, but hasn't gotten any love. We'll wrap up the show with this week in Detroit Tigers history when on August 12th of 1987 the Tigers made a transaction best known in Michigan as the John Smoltz trade. It's time to throw on the old English D apparel, let the pride hang out, and heck, while you're at it, grab a beer out of the fridge. It's this week in Detroit Tigers baseball episode number 7, and it starts now. Got it, strike three. See you later. Look out, Freddie Delsey. Wow. Uh-oh, high drive into left field. This ball is hit well, way back. Luciano will watch it fly. It's gone. For second, the 1-0. Swinging a fly ball. Left wow. field is wow. deep. It's way back. The Tigers are going to the World Series. Bringing the best Detroit Tigers bloggers together to talk about our team. Sponsored by MotorCityBingles.com. It's This Week in Detroit Tigers Baseball, and it starts now. Hello and welcome to yet another edition of This Week in Detroit Tigers Baseball. I'm your host, Joe Dexter. A lot to get to in episode number seven. For the Detroit Tigers, this stretch has been an interesting one. A lot of obstacles in the way for Justin Verlander. Gives up five runs in his first start in the first inning. And in his second start of the week against the Minnesota Twins, he gave up two earned runs. But he still was able to get the job done both times. The Tigers... Playing well offensively, they have started to step up. We'll talk about that with our panelists this week. John Brunn of TigerGeist.com and Jay Ellett Lambie of EyeOfTheTigers.com. Well, the Detroit Tigers got underway in Fenway Park last night against the Boston Red Sox. They fall 5-6 to six after coming back, being down big in that game, 4 to nothing. They're able to come back. The offense was strong, but not just quite enough. Adam Everett talks about the first game in Boston. You know, we battled and we battled all game. We came back to tie it up and then uh, to have a chance to take the lead right there, you know, at least tie the game up, it's kind of disheartening, I mean, because we played well. You know, they beat us. We didn't beat ourselves, which is good. In what many would consider an off night for Edwin Jackson, the Tigers were able to battle back into the game. A good sign of things to come for the rest of the series. Well, coming up in this week of Detroit Tigers baseball, we'll be joined by our panelists, J.L. at LambieViveTheTigers.com and John Brunn of TigerGeist.com to talk about the latest in Detroit Tigers action and the upcoming Boston Red Sox series. That's all coming up, plus more on this week in Detroit Tigers baseball, part of the fan-sided network. All-star fans, all-star content. Fansided.com is a sports network where diehard fans dish out non-stop sports news and views. Come after me! I'm a man! I'm 40! Fandom has no off-season, and neither do we. We're talking about practice. Not a game, not a game, not a game. We're talking about practice. Not a game, not a game, not a game. Fansided.com, the number one pro sports blog network on the internet. Confessions of a Potentially Perfect Parent, brought to you by AdoptUsKids.org. I don't know how to talk like a parent. Don't make me come back there. You see what I mean? It's pretty awful. Try to get... Don't 
make me come back there. Now that's pretty good. That one kind of sounded like my dad. Weird. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. There are thousands of teens in foster care who would love to put up with you. Call 1-888-200-4005 or visit AdoptUsKids.org for more information. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt Us Kids, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to This Week in Detroit Tigers Baseball. Here's your host, Joe Dexter. Welcome back to This Week in Detroit Tigers Baseball, episode number seven. Today, our panelists, Jay Ellett Lamby of EyeOfTheTigers.com and John Brunn of TigerGuys.com. Hey, guys, how's it going? Good, Joe. Thanks. Very good. Thanks for having me back. Definitely my pleasure to have both of you guys back, and I want to start right with the Baltimore Orioles series. As we look at what happened in the series, Brian Matus comes in for the Baltimore Orioles, one of their top prospects, great young pitching. The Tigers able to win three out of four, but we'll start with Jay. What did you think of that young Orioles pitching, especially Brian Matus? I think it might be a bit early to say that, uh, that he's full out ready to, you know, to take out an assignment every five days, but... Remember, he's one of the young pitchers the Orioles have in their system that they've been high on for a couple of years. Uh, he has big-time talent. When rookies come up, they have the disadvantage of, uh, of not having all the experience, but it can be an advantage. For opposing hitters haven't seen them. They haven't been able to scout them as much. They don't have a book on them. And if a young pitcher can do a simple thing, and you mentioned it, change speeds with a changeup and a fastball and locate, he's going to get guys out. He definitely looked good, and I think there's a future there, but it's probably a bit too early to anoint him at this point. Despite winning three out of four in the series, John, against the Baltimore Orioles, the young pitching, they did pitch well against the Tigers. Now, looking back to Matusa's start, was that a factor that he was just dealing, or do you think the Tigers' offense was just struggling like they've had against young pitchers so far this year? You know, I think it's probably a little of both. I think the big thing, I mean, just looking at stats right here, he did only go five innings, so they, uh, the, the Baltimore bullpen definitely shut Detroit down just as much um, as uh, Matus did. Um, but, yeah, he looked, he looked really solid. Um, can't, uh, can't fault him for that. I guess for me, I wasn't watching him as much as really just, you know, the, uh, what appeared to be the nervousness of Jared Washburn. Um, so that really is what caught my eye more a little bit than, uh, than Matus. But then you look at the scoreboard, Jared Washburn, definitely intriguing. We'll talk about him in just a bit. But, John, I want to talk about the Justin Verlander start where he gives up five runs in the first inning. He comes back and pitches nearly flawlessly and keeps the Tigers in the ballgame, and they end up winning that game. One of my favorite starts, and Justin Verlander says it's one of his favorite starts. How about you evaluate that start for us? Yeah, it was really it was really amazing. Um, I'm not sure what it is with Verlander. I think Jackson has the same problem, too, that – it's it's like they and, and I think Jason Beck had talked about this, but they come in at uh, X miles per hour. They don't want to crank it up right away, and it does seem that they they're missing their their out pitch right away. Um, they seem to struggle in the early innings, um, higher pitch counts. And what's odd is the fifth and sixth inning, which is when the other the opposing uh, lineup has gone through. You know, I see them two or three times. They they get you know ten seven pitch outs. And that's really uh, what's really amazing. And so with Verlander going eight innings after giving up five runs. You know, it really is one of his best performances. Jay, we look at what Justin Verlander did earlier in his career, maybe even a start before that. He might have been given up on the start after giving up five runs in the first inning. Evaluate Justin Verlander's performance. Well, I echo your sentiments that it was it was clearly a very impressive performance, one of the favorite starts I've seen from Justin. And I think Jim Leland made some great points in the postgame comments that, it was so much about maturity, uh, the ability to 
to have that what's done is done mentality, and I have to move forward. I still have the ball in my hands. They may have five on the board, but at least I can stop them from getting any more. And John brought up a great point when he talked about uh, the inability sometimes for Justin and Edwin to to really fire the out pitch and, and crank up that fastball early on the start. Uh, Justin improves so much in the later innings of that start uh, as he has throughout the year, really. His opponent's batting average against him the second and third time through the lineup is lower than the first time, and that's the polar opposite of what it normally is for major league pitchers. Uh, for Justin to be able to end that series in a tight race to, to step up after coughing up five in the first frame was, was really something else, and I was, was very, very impressed. When you look at what Justin Verlander did, it might be a sentiment to what he's been able to do this season as well, struggling in the first half a bit to start the season, then getting really hot, making the all-star team and performing well. And it might just be an extension of his maturity adjustment in character. And, John, talk a little bit about that. Are, are we seeing a new Justin Verlander? Is this a guy that wants to take the ball and be the ace of the staff? Well, I, I think he's always wanted the ball, uh, whether or not he, he deserved it earlier in his career. Um is questionable, but now obviously he's the best pitcher on the staff. Um, Edwin Jackson maybe is giving him a little little uh, internal run for his money, but um, he's got the best stuff. He's um, he's really working hard. Obviously, uh, early in the year was interesting. There was a comment by Leland in, in some quote, and you know, of course, I, I read it. I didn't. I wasn't there, but um, he said something about the fact that he either Verlander doesn't like Leland or Leland doesn't like Verlander. There's some personality clashes, and I'm not sure if that was a joke or not, but. Um, it seems like Leland for a little while has been just kind of, of, of upset at the stubbornness of, of Verlander. And um, as you were mentioning earlier, uh, at the, the, the last game, Leland really had some great things to say. And it seems like they've really broken, gotten into Verlander's head that, hey, you know, you are a stud, if you will, but you're going to have to play like it. And you're going to have to, you know, listen to other people once in a while. And you're going to have to, you know, maybe slow it down, which he was obviously really reluctant to do earlier this spring, but um, I think Rick Knapp had said uh, he was, it, it seemed like now he's ready to listen to him. And I mean, the, you're seeing the results and, and you wonder if um, uh, the last game they had, if that's, you know, after going eight innings, giving up five, if now he's, if, if not now, he's going to turn it on for the rest of the year and really be a stud or, you know, 2010 is really going to be an impressive year for him. Well, John, a guy that made his debut with the Detroit Tigers in this series was Alex Avila. One thing I learned, not Avila, Avila. He makes his debuts. Thoughts on his debuts? And is it pretty interesting to you that he takes more playing time and compared to Dusty Ryan, who's now been demoted? Um, yeah, the real surprise there was right away Leland just said, hey, I'm pitching. I'm catching him uh, you know, two nights out of the five for the staff. Um so I don't really know what what is to that if it's if it's they, they're just so confident in his defensive ability, um, if they're uh, they think his bat he's you know a plus hitter, um, you know you, you'd be surprised if he comes in and hits 320 for the rest of the year that you know you'd never would guess that, and he probably I mean he definitely won't, but um, you know you wonder is it just such confidence that they didn't have in, in Dustin Ryan, um, Dusty Ryan, or um, or you know Dane Sardina. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know, but it seems it was really odd that right away is, hey, you know, he's had two years in minor league or a year and a half in minor league ball. Now I'm going to start him twice a week. 
It almost seemed like a desperation early to get a chance for some offense, something that they've tried in the past in the second half, and this time it actually worked. Jay, we'll go to you on this one. Avila will be starting for Porcello and Galarraga. Is this a stab at adding more offense in the lineup than when the big three are going? Well, I think if anything, it's it's an attempt to let Gerald Laird play an appropriate number of ball games on the stretch. Um, I wrote a column about five or six weeks ago talking about the dip in Gerald Laird's performance and the fact that he was playing so much and how Dane Sardina and Dusty Ryan had really been ineffective at spelling him and, and giving the Tigers not only anything offensively, but you know they were a far cry from Gerald defensively. Uh, Avila was a risk. It was. It surprised me that they brought him up. I didn't expect it, although I had hoped they would make some kind of a move. Uh, be a backup veteran catcher, uh, you know, a minor league guy. But, I mean, how much more impressive can you be than four for seven with, what, six RBIs and three extra base hits in his first two starts? Uh, what a heck of a show. He's a big left-handed bat, which this team, if he can sustain any kind of numbers, would be a big plus. And one thing that I noticed, the reason I think you'll see him more often uh, than you saw Sardina and Ryan with two strikes on a batter, and, you know, it's an 0-2 count, a 1-2 count, and a pitcher wants to throw that breaking ball in the dirt, you didn't seem to see that called very often with Ryan behind the plate. And I don't know if it was a confidence issue from the pitchers, from the manager, who it was. You saw that several times in the two starts with Avila, where pitchers weren't afraid to put the ball in the dirt, and he did a fantastic job of blocking it. He, he looks very comfortable back there, and I'm hoping this is the start of some very good things. And it's an interesting move. Uh, John and I were talking before the episode about how Avila looks just comfortable at the plate, how he's got great recognition. Jim Leland mentioned that as well. Also, John, you mentioned in the show notes about the Greg Zahn trade as he goes to Tampa Bay and how it's interesting the Tigers wanted to go with Avila instead of a veteran like Greg Zahn, somebody that has been in the Detroit Tigers system in the future. You want to go a little bit uh, more on that, on what you thought about that? Well, it took me a while to find all the details, but it looks like it was a waiver claim, so Detroit probably didn't have a shot at Zahn. But you think if, you know, on July 30th, if he was available, um, you know, you assume Detroit was calling about Luke Scott or, or somehow had, you know, the, the Orioles general manager phone number. You would assume if, if, if Zahn was available, you know, two weeks ago that Detroit would have would have asked for something. So I don't know. I mean, there's no details in the player to be named later. I don't know if there's really actually a really good player that was, was exchanged or not. Um but it does seem odd that that they didn't make that move. Jay, we talk about veteran presence behind the plate for your rookie. Matt Wieters was the rookie over in Baltimore. Greg Zahn spelled him a bit. When you look at possibly Avila playing a lot more than he is right now, is that something you look to do in in this season, or do you still spell him with Gerald Laird? Do you need to have Laird back there? Well, I think you need to have an effective split between the two players uh, for it to work long-term and, and for it to work this year, frankly. Gerald Laird is arguably the best defensive catcher in, in all of baseball, if not in the American League right now. He provides a comfort level to his starting pitchers. He's not an upper, upper echelon hitter, but he has shown recently that when he gets some rest and he's not overtaxed, he still has the ability to drive in a few runs. If Alex Avila... Avila, pardon me, and my uh, pronunciation <laughs> faux pas there. I'm still learning like you. If he can play good defense, hit 250 to 275 with some pop, 
he is Greg Zahn. In fact, he's better than Greg Zahn because he has a future. Not saying I wouldn't uh, like to see a, a veteran catcher in the mix, but it's going to be that test of time. If if Avila can effectively hold this backup role for the next two months, I think they're a better ball club. I'd agree completely with that. And you look at Gerald Laird, he was hitting 300 in the first three weeks of the season. He was doing well. And then, as you mentioned in your column at eyeofthetigers.com, it just started falling apart because he was playing a little bit too much. Well, let's make the switch to a pivotal series against the Minnesota Twins. The Tigers win two out of three this weekend against the Twins. I guess I want to start with, were you surprised with the play and the offensive output from the Tigers, especially the top of the order? We'll start with John. Uh, sorry, I was on mute there. Um, yeah, I mean, they were surprised in two ways. One, they looked fantastic in two games, and they were just put up a stinker in in the middle game there. Um, but, I mean, I, I think that you're seeing right there is what everyone's why everyone wants um, Granderson to lead off and why you want Polanco in the two-hole. Um, it's just, you know, they can definitely spark the team as long as they're not uh, being wildly inconsistent. Um or going on, on hitting streaks and then um, you know having the uh, the low lights uh, we've seen a lot this year. Um, Polanco seems re- really turning it on, which which is exciting because at, at his age you're never really sure what you're going to get. Granderson, you just kind of assume. Um, what is he? 26, 27, 28. Um, you know, you know he's not done. You know he's he's going to warm up, um, or you know he can warm up. Polanco, at some point at his age, you just wonder if you know if this is what we're going to get, and it, it looks like he's got some left in the tank. Well, speaking of what somebody having something left in the tank, I really think Brad Radke changed his name to Carl Pavano and put the Minnesota uniform back on because you look at what Pavano has done against the Tigers. I just don't get it. He has shut him down three, four times this year, going seven-plus innings every single time. And, Jay, we'll start with that. What is up with the Tigers not being able to hit somebody who's got paid to start 26 times in four years for the Yankees? If I had the answer to that, I would be a happier man, Joe. I, uh, I... Carl Pavano is, there are mysteries every year in this game that make it interesting and, and make it exciting and, and prove the idiom that you can't play games on paper. And if anybody had told me that Carl Pavano would be 4-0 against the Tigers at this point this year, I obviously would have had them committed. Um, but he has just been a, just a different pitcher this season. He has confidence. He has command of you know, two, three different pitches. He's able to change speeds and locate. He, he's not a world beater. He's not going to win a Cy Young. But that pickup by Minnesota is very beneficial for them. And he demonstrated firsthand twice in a week that he can get the Tigers out. Don't know how he does it, but he seems to be doing it. Some way he does do it, and the Tigers, or excuse me, the Twins sit out five and a half games out currently. And Jay, they add Orlando Cabrera as well as Carl Pavano. Is this a team that's still in the hunt? I think so. Yeah, it's hard to count the Twins out because every year we do it, and then a week later we're looking at them being a half game back. Uh, this ball club is well coached. They have a lot of veterans, and they still have two guys named Joe Maurer and Justin Morneau who can destroy the ball against left and right-handed pitchers. The crutch for them this year has been starting pitching. Uh, they've lost guys to injury. They've had ineffectiveness. They've had a guy like Francisco Liriano be so up and down that you really don't know what to expect. They're not the favorite in my mind this year. They're not even the biggest threat to the Tigers at this point. I think the White Sox are more so. Uh, but 
I'm I'm not going to count the Twins out until 162 games have been played and we have final standings in front of us. It's going to be an interesting race down to the wire. We'll talk about some addings that just happened today, but I want to preview the Red Sox series as well. As we currently record, the Tigers are playing. They're down 4-3 to three against the Red Sox. This is a big series as they head into Fenway Park. How many do they have to win against the big boys in order to, in your mind, for it to be a successful series and to show that the Tigers are actually going to compete with the big names in the AL? We'll start with John. Well, I definitely like a win. Uh, last time they got swept by Baltimore at home, that wasn't uh, nearly as exciting. Um, I think a, a split would be great uh, with with all the games being close. Um, I'd like to see the bullpen p- pitch well um, against them. That's kind of uh, the, the unknown at this point. With Detroit is in a playoff series, you know, when when the uh, the good teams get down to your bullpen and your closers, and your setup men and your closers, how you're going to react. So you know, some some if they were to win today five four and uh, Lyon and Rodney shut them out, I'd be pretty happy with that. Um, uh, but yeah, I think a split, I think even though Boston's down, they're still a pretty good team. Um, and I think, uh, asking for a series win would be a little, a little much at this point. Honestly, last time these two teams met, I was there at Comerica Park for Rick Porcello's start. He's who goes on the mound today, speaking Tuesday. And you look at what he's done this year. It's been impressive so far. The bounce back with the win in his last start. And I think that this Tigers team is a little bit different than the last time the Red Sox were in town. Jay, what do you think about that? Do you think that this Tigers offense is starting to come together and it's a little bit different of a team? Well, they have looked better the last uh, two weeks and uh, throughout the month of August, and it's encouraging. We spoke a little bit about it earlier, guys like Placido Polanco, who's now up to 276 coming in tonight. This was a guy who was hitting 245, you know, seven, eight weeks ago. Uh, Curtis Granderson is showing more effectiveness. Miguel Cabrera is still that dominant guy in the lineup. Uh, the offense has looked what, at a level I think we were expecting it to look a couple of months ago, and that's encouraging. But they've still also laid a couple of eggs in the last seven to ten days. So the consistency issues are still there. I think they're definitely more prepared to compete with the big boys in the AL East. And if they can pick up a split out of this series in Fenway Park, that would be an encouraging sign for me. I would agree with that. Very encouraging to see if the Tigers can get a split in Boston this week. Well, we've got a lot to talk to, not much time. Let's talk about some regular things going on, including Rick Knapp's presence. Well, I want to talk about this a bit. The guy just isn't getting enough credit. I noticed Kurt mentioning over at Mac Avenue Tigers, he named Knapp his MVP of the season so far. And those are some big words to say about a pitching coach. And we'll go to John on this. He's been a big effect more than just the starting pitchers. It's been the relief pitchers too, hasn't it? Well, you've certainly certainly seen a lot of improvement in the relief pitchers. Um, you know, it, for me, I, I have no idea how much impact Knapp really has. Last year, when when Chuck Hernandez was on the team, um, everyone was was clamoring for his head, and Leland was basically like, "He's doing a fine job. People don't understand what he does." So, in a way, I don't. I assume this is all related to Rick Knapp. I you know would like to make that assumption, and I and I will. Um, I think it'd be exciting to see what what we get next year too. Is kind of as as a you know, two full spring trainings. Um, I like to see how the team handles the rest of the season as, you know, uh, the relievers are all getting tired as well. And so how a lot of a lot of his lessons um, will stay in their mind as as they get fatigued and, and uh, get down or get up there in the innings. 
Well, so far this year, a lot of praise has been given to Rick Knapp, but say we're down the stretch, Rick Knapp and the pitching staff struggles just a bit. Is there going to be a lot of pressure in the second half on Rick Knapp, Jay? Well, sure. Uh, you know, he's the new guy on board, and he was brought in with high expectations. But uh, John brought up a great point, that it, it's difficult to judge a position coach or a pitching coach in this case based only on the totality of statistics. So many things that you're not privy to and you're not witness to in bullpen sessions and warm-ups uh, on plane trips and, and, and how they really relate with pitchers to a man. But if you're looking statistically, you know, Rick Knapp has done a great job. He's not only corralled the starting rotation and done well with the bullpen, but he's had how many different pitchers that he's had to deal with. I mean, the Tigers have called up and sent down a, a flurry of guys. He's had to deal with injuries, ineffectiveness. Um, and I think because of that and because of all the positive energy that's around him right now, you bring up a good point. If if the rotation goes in the tank for a month, suddenly people are going to be calling for Rick Knapp's head just like they did with Chuck Hernandez for the business. But I tend to believe that that's less likely to happen, put it that way. Well, one of the guys that Rick Knapp is going to have to work on in the second half is Jared Washburn, who comes over from Seattle in that trade. So far, not a good start in the old English D and J. I think that he's going to bounce back. If you're Rick Knapp, how do you handle this situation, considering Jared Washburn has a favorite pitching coach of his own in Seattle? Well, I think you, you talk to Jared Washburn like the veteran that he is. You know, he's an almost 35-year-old left-handed pitcher who's been in this game for a long time. When you reach that point, it's not about coaching. It's about tiny little tweaks, and it's about making a guy feel comfortable. Um, and, and I'm not too worried about Jared Washburn. He has thrown three pitches exceptionally well this year, and his fourth pitch pretty well. Um, a lot of the hits that he allowed in his first two starts were on good pitches. Guys were just making good swings on him. Is he going to be Doyle Alexander of 2009? Then no, I don't think he's going to go nine and zero for the rest of the year and lead this team single-handedly to the you know the brink of the playoffs. But uh, I think the best thing Rick Knapp can do again is keep his confidence up, make sure that he's not falling into old bad habits that made Jared Washburn a 500 pitcher for his entire career, and, and just hope for the best. That's solid points coming from a left-hander, Jared Washburn. I think a lot of us, we look at the numbers, had a great ERA coming into Detroit. He's pitched well for Seattle. And I think a lot of us just feel that since he had those numbers, that he's going to be the Edwin Jackson, the Justin Verlander type in the rotation. And, John, that's not just going to be the case, is it? No, and I think everyone thought that uh, um, the outfield defenses in Seattle is exceptional. Um, he's a fly ball pitcher. Um, in Detroit right now, they're not throwing a whole lot of uh, uh, very good defensive outfielders behind them. Actually, the the first game he pitched he pitched in uh, it was what downright dreadful, wasn't Rayburn in center with Ordonez and uh, Tims? Right. Um, though I don't I don't think that was the reason that he didn't do as well as we had hoped. But I think I mean we had we basically knew we were we being the Tigers were grabbing um, a, a veteran presence, a guy who's won a World Series. Um, and kind of uh, hoping to shore up a, a relatively unknown um, in, in Lucas French. 
Yeah, that's a good point. You bring in a veteran. He has had experience before, and I think it is a good add, and hopefully he'll be able to bounce back. I think he will. Speaking of bouncing back, a lot earlier in the year, our first episode with all the bloggers, Jay, you mentioned that you thought Placido Polanco was going to bounce back. We talked about it just a bit. His average is up, and he is really key in that number two slot, and Curtis Granderton, and he's stepping up in the one slot. You think this is going to continue? I certainly hope so, and I believe that, that if history is any indicator, it will. Placido Polanco is is a very good contact, line drive type of hitter, always has been, and that's what he's doing now again. He's hitting 400 for the month of August coming in to tonight's game. His batting average has gone up every month since May, uh, and he looks to be his old self again. There was a stretch where I think when he was struggling – Believe it or not, Placido Polanco was trying to hit too many home runs, and uh, his swing was a little lopsided, and at least to me, it, it seemed a little off. And I don't know if it's veteran presence, presence or calm or or what, but he he seems to be reverting to that line drive guy who'll take what the pitchers give him, and he is a huge catalyst for this offense. Uh, it's a heck of a lot tougher pitching to the three and four hitter with you know with one or two guys on base than with nobody on and two out. Agree wholeheartedly on that one, and it's pretty interesting how Polanco's bounced back. I agree with you. That swing, it's more of a cut swing, trying to put things in play instead of driving the ball, and I think that's going to be a key down the stretch. And interesting enough, he starts getting the back bat, bat back excuse me, after the errorless streak breaks. Pretty interesting how that works. And, John, we'll go to you on the next subject. We're talking about... Um, shoulder injury for Carlos Guillen. He's still hitting from only one side. He hasn't made it to the outfield yet, but he has been a real effective in the offense. Let's talk a little bit about Guillen moving into the outfield. When you look at what could happen if he does move in the outfield, it's going to make him a little bit weaker defensively, isn't it? That's what you assume. I guess, I mean, it, it, it's a relatively unknown. Um, I don't know how bad Marcus Tim is, really is in the outfield. He, they, they, they look afraid to play him. Um, Guillen's looked fantastic hitting. I don't want to screw that up. Um, but if, if he can't play in the outfield or if they're worried about his shoulder and they should be, um, you know, I, I don't know what they do there in terms of, I'm not really sold on, um, uh, excuse me, uh, Ryan Rayburn as a backup infielder. I don't, I think he's below average there. And so I think overall they're going to have to make a decision if they want to make a move of some sort for a cheap utility infielder, but it's going to be very difficult if Guillen can't play. I think it's going to be interesting, too, when you look at what Cleet Thomas has done offensively, Jay. He's come up big in certain situations, especially here in the last few weeks. Is Thomas the right guy to play out in the outfield? Oh, that's a question. Um, I, I would rather have Carlos Guillen's bat filling one of the corner outfield positions, but we, have, we really have no idea what his legs or his shoulder are going to be like out there. He hasn't you know, played in the outfield at all in his rehab or yet. In his recall, now the options they have, Cleet Thomas, uh, I'm not sold on the routes that he takes to long fly balls. I think he's uh, still a little rough around the edges defensively. He has a good arm. I'll give him that. He plays hard. This is a guy that seems to love the game and, and work very hard. You hear good things from coaches about his work ethic, but... I don't know. If you put Marcus Timms, Carlos Guillen, and Cleet Thomas in a bag and shake them up and one of them has to play right field that night, I think you're going to get about the same thing defensively from any of the three of them. And notice that I didn't put Ryan Rayburn in that bag because 
And believe me, I'd like to put them in a bag sometimes, but not in that situation. As sad as it is, all three are an upgrade over Ryan Rayburn defensively. Which is pretty interesting when you think at Jim Leland, he loves Ryan Rayburn, but defensively, Ryan Rayburn falls apart. That's one of the big things Leland loves, so it's a pretty interesting situation. Well, as we leave episode number seven, guys, pretty interesting topic coming out. Jim Leland getting his voice out there, saying he's sick and tired of performance-enhancing drugs and that fans don't really care about the situation. So I thought I'd ask you guys, we'll start with Jay. What are your thoughts? Do you think, uh, if you've read these comments, do you think the fans really care about these situations? I think Jim Leland hit the nail on the head for the most part. Uh, our fans, uh, you can't really classify all fans in one category, but for the most part, I think the biggest factor of fans will say, if you're on my team and you're playing well, I'm not too concerned with how you got here. If you're on the other team, that's a different story. And, you know, the the mass media and has made so much out of the PED issue over the last couple of years that you could tell Leland was a little frustrated with it, like I am, and I think a lot of other people. I, I would have expected nothing less to come out of Jim Leland's mouth than nobody cares, non-story, let's move on to the next question. He said today, or I believe it was yesterday, quote, I couldn't care less what anybody else thinks. If David Ortiz said he didn't knowingly take anything, I believe him. And, John, I, I'm starting to believe David Ortiz as well. When you look at the situation, what's going on, I don't know. Maybe it's because I don't want to believe that the big poppy that we all become to love is on performance-enhancing drugs or used them in the past. But you, I think you got to kind of take that approach for these situations. I may not be the best person to ask. I, I was here and moved to San Francisco in, in, in 2000, and that's one of the first times Bond showed up. And we, we, everyone was like, oh, you know what? He doesn't want to steal bases anymore, so he just started bulking up the weight room. And I, I honestly sold that to myself uh, for about four years. Um, so I, I'm a little jaded on all of it. Um, I th- A big story on this was um, uh, that ESPN just kind of ran a headline saying, Leland doesn't something to the effect of Leland doesn't think Ortiz cheated, and I, I didn't think it was it was like a, a headline worthy story. Um, I'm kind of surprised the national media kind of ran with with Leland's thoughts. I I imagine every um, manager wouldn't care, and they wouldn't want to stir anything up anyway, so they'd probably have little opinion on it. J. L. Atlanty of I of the Tigers dot com and John Brun of TigerGuys.com, our week's panelists. Thanks to them for talking a little bit about Detroit Tigers baseball. When we come back, we'll continue the talk this week in Detroit Tigers history. We go back to August 12, 1987, when the Tigers acquired a pitcher named Doyle Alexander. That and more is on deck on this week in Detroit Tigers baseball, part of the fan-sided network. It's Minner at the 30. He's to the 20. Cuts outside at the 15. Minner to the 10. Minner to the 5. Touchdown! I don't care if he's slash, dash, double, or trouble. D'Angelo Williams has the goods to play in the National Football League. Blanker right, split and left. DeLone on a handoff up the middle. D'Angelo Williams first into the clear and takes it to the house for a score. It's the show that's all about your Carolina Panthers. Catch the great debate, the interview, and much, much more, including interviews and opinion. It's the best Carolina Panthers podcast alive. Catch it at catcraveradio.com. They give Gibson the left field foul line. Brown is in left.
four World Series championships, 20 Hall of Famers, and in existence since 1901. We wear the Old English D proudly since 1904 because it is our heritage. It's time for This Week in Detroit Tigers History on MotorCityBengals.com. Welcome back to This Week in Detroit Tigers Baseball, episode number seven. For This Week in Detroit Tigers History, we look back to August 12, 1987, when the Atlanta Braves dealt pitcher Doyle Alexander to the Detroit Tigers for little-known minor leaguer John Smoltz. Before the trade, the Tigers have been very upfront about their desire to acquire Alexander as being in the playoff hunt. But after an initial list of four players for the Braves to choose from was shot down, scout John Hagerman suggested Smoltz, who had been seen while scouting the other players on the list with the Glenn Falls Tigers. Further discussions between the two clubs' front offices led to talks centering around the Braves getting either Smoltz or another pitcher, Steve Searchy. Detroit's front office was divided as part of the long conflict between GM Bill LaJoy and team president Jim Campbell. Finally, the decision was made by Campbell to send Smoltz because Searchy was closer to being major league ready. In the short term, Alexander was a stud for the Detroit Tigers. In 11 starts for them, he went 9-0 with a 1.53 ERA. His pitching helped the Tigers win the AL East in 19. 87, but the Tigers lost in the ALCS to the eventual champions, the Minnesota Twins. On the other hand, as all Detroit Tigers fans know, Smoltz was just a year out of high school when he was sent to Richmond for more seasoning, while Alexander helped the Tigers to the division crown. In 1988, Smoltz did debut with the Atlanta Braves, and 20 seasons later, he has more than 200 wins, 150 saves, and a Cy Young Award with eight All-Star appearances. Overall, this trade is remembered as a one-sided deal, but Alexander did help the Tigers to win the division title and was named an All-Star the following season. And that's this week's moment in Detroit Tigers history. We want to hear from you on the Doyle Alexander John Smoltz trade. What are your opinions? Email us today at MotorCityBengals at gmail.com and we'll feature you in our next episode. Coming up next on This Week in Detroit Tigers Baseball, we'll take a look at a shortstop prospect that is making his name heard in AAA Toledo. That and more is on the way on This Week in Detroit Tigers Baseball, part of the Fansided Network. We're proud to be standing there like a house on the side of the road, and we cheer when your tiger hits it long gone. MotorCityBengals.com, part of the Fansided Network at Fansided.com. Want the best spin on sports, pop culture, and just about everything else? Put your name on it. That's all I say. Be a man or a woman. Put your name on it. All right, all right. Calm down, Herm. It's the Fan Addict with Adam Best, the senior editor at Fansided.com. On the Fan Addict, Adam will cover the best of times. Roger Clemens is coming back. Oh, my good goodness gracious. He'll cover the worst of times. It's my team. It's my quarterback. If you guys do that, man, it's unfair. Whether it's unfair or not, Adam Best is there for the downright weird. Farm. And now, whoa, what happened here? Fan came It's the Burger King guy. What is going on? The Burger King guy? Is that the best you got? You need to check out this senior editor's spin on sports, pop culture, and just about everything else. It's the Fan Addict on Fansuffit.com. They're not growling, they're not biting, heck, they're not even angry. But these young players have a future in the old English D. It's time for Prospects on the Prowl on MotorCityBengals.com. Here's Joe Dexter. 
Welcome back to this week in Detroit Tigers baseball episode number seven. I am your host, Joe Dexter. For this week's prospect on the brawl, we take a look at a Toledo mud hen that doesn't have much experience for being 26 years old. Brent Delugich of the Toledo Mudhens has had a great season so far, hitting 288 currently with the ball club, but that hasn't been the case so far throughout his young career. In 2007, he played in just 22 games with Double Erie in the Eastern League before a right shoulder injury cut his season short. And last year, he played in just seven games for the Gulf Coast League Tigers in July after recovering from that right shoulder injury. In a system that includes a lot of great infielders, including Danny Worth, Michael Holloman, Scott Sizemore, and Will Rhymes up the middle, Delugich has been a surprise in 2009. And one thing he says he's done is gone through the ball through his success. Quote, one thing I'm trying to do is just stay through the ball. It's helped me create the right bat path, and that has resulted in some fly balls that have left the park. Delugich has nine home runs on the season, and with the solid defense he has flashed in his short career, he could be a replacement sooner rather than later for Adam Everett and Ramon Santiago, who both become free agents in the offseason. Well, that's going to wrap up this edition of This Week in Detroit Tigers Baseball. I am your host, Joe Dexter. Coming up for the Detroit Tigers, it's a pivotal four-game series against the Boston Red Sox. Two games underway already. On Wednesday, the Tigers will send Armando Galarraga to the mound to take on Josh Beckett. And on Thursday, to wrap up the Red Sox series, Justin Verlander's down the mound. He'll be taking on Clay Buckholt. And then the Tigers will take on the Kansas City Royals in the weekend series at Comerica Park. Jared Washburn opens up the series with his third start with the Tigers. He'll take on Zach Greinke. I'd like to thank John Brun of TigerGuys.com and J.L. Atlambi of iOfTheTigers.com for joining us in episode number seven. As always, great content. You can catch on iTunes and MotorCityBengals.com. And until episode number eight, have a great week. Thank you for listening to This Week in Detroit Tigers Baseball. Do you want to be heard on the show? Email your comments and questions in to MotorCityBangles at gmail.com or call our voice line at 231-683-1367. This Week in Detroit Tigers Baseball, bringing the best Tigers bloggers together to talk about your team. Until next week, go Tigers!